our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I trust you're ready to engage in some wrong think. Maybe revel in it. That's what I'm all about here. It's not that I have all the answers. Look, I'm, I'm trying to get by as best I can to make sense of all the crazy stuff that's going on around us. And, uh, you know, I'll admit right up front, I don't know everything. And there are some things I may get dead wrong, but I will do my honest best to share with you information that's timely, credible, and uh, hopefully provides a broader perspective. Whether you agree or not, that is up to you. There is no implied, you know, agreement that, well, to listen to this program, you better agree. That's not necessary. Instead, I would just want you to consider that uh, there may be some different things that I can offer, different viewpoints uh, via various commentators that I like to share that, uh, that will hopefully expand your perspective. And again, what you do with that information, that's entirely up to you. One thing that I'm starting to see a lot of, and, and perhaps it's you know just the product of spending too much time on Twitter, but man, there just seemed to be this, this endless supply of videos of people shoplifting with impunity or, you know, I mean, some of them, it's, it's just disturbing. You know, I mean, I look at the looting of the Walmarts and so forth in, in Chicago, I think they're shutting down four different Walmarts in the greater Chicago area simply because uh, mobs have come in there and rampaged and ransacked them. And, you know, and, and not everybody is on board with this. Okay. So don't, don't get the impression. Yeah. The whole neighborhood, you know, just joined in and there were people who were grieving, crying as they're walking through their filming and saying, this is terrible. I'm trying, I'm here to buy ki- food for my kids. I want to pay for my food, but I can't do it because looters have come through and trashed everything. I don't know. There's something just absolutely surreal about it. And, and we're seeing, you know, other examples of crime. Chicago, I think was probably the, the biggest example of this, this last weekend, what was going on there? What was in the water? I don't know. But the mayor, oh my goodness, the, the, the mental gymnastics this guy was engaging in. He could not say categorically, looting is bad or it's a criminal activity. He had to, you know, try to, you know, spin it this way or that. Well, you know, these people have to eat and we're not hearing the cries of people who are hungry. And it's like, come on. They're looting stuff because they're caught up in a mob mentality and a sense of entitlement, and, and they don't care. And, and the danger here is that when, when your private property rights, and I'm talking about the private property rights of the store and, and the merchandise that it has purchased to retail to the public, when those uh, private property rights are no longer being uh, you know, observed or enforced, you know, cops, for the most part, seem pretty uh, powerless to do anything. Maybe that's because they're being directed, you know, from higher up, you know, to, to stand down. Who can blame the stores for, for shutting down? Well, for some reason, there seems to be food deserts and there's, there's retail deserts in some areas of these big cities. I wonder why that is. Uh, it must be racism. No, it's because there's, there's unchecked crime and legalized shoplifting and a lot of other crazy stuff going on. So I, I came across this interview with Doug Casey. This was published on lourockwell.com today. An interview with International Man. And Doug has a really good take on this. I think it's worth considering. So, in, in interest of that, I want to share this with you. 
International Man says in parts of California and other states, shoplifting under $950 has been de facto decriminalized. The practical reality is that thieves can now walk into a store and steal whatever they can without fear of police intervening as long as it's under $950. The trend of de facto legalization of shoplifting is actually spreading across the country. What's your take? And Doug Casey says, well, the rise in crime in general and the veritable legalization rather of shoplifting in particular are really just symptoms. He says the real problem is that the moral fabric of the U.S. and many other Western countries are torn. There's not much of a moral compass left. It's no longer clear to the average American what's right and what's wrong. Right and wrong is now viewed as arbitrary social constructs. Property rights are barely even seen as rights, which is perverse since the very concept of rights is based in property, starting with your own body, which is the most basic form of property. Doug says this degeneration is understandable in a world where black is white and wrong is right. It's become unclear in many people's minds what a man is, what a woman is, and what the difference is. If there's no recognition of something as basic and obvious as that, the meaning of words and any logic and thought becomes meaningless. So, of course, they have trouble understanding concepts like right and wrong, but he says it goes beyond that. For instance, many people think that reparations are due to black people simply because they're black. And many blacks were slaves over 160 years ago. Incidentally, he says, I don't capitalize that word, something which has become a widespread affectation. It only serves to draw attention to race, which is part of the problem. So let's pursue the absurd matter of racial reparations for a moment, since some miscreants have said all blacks in California are due $5 million. But he asks, are reparations due to American blacks by any stretch of fact or logic? The average income of blacks in the U.S. is many, many times that of blacks who are still in Africa. Should blacks in the U.S. therefore pay whites something out of gratitude? The answer, just in case anybody is wondering, is of course not. When people think they're due reparations, the next step is for them to think, or rather to feel, since there's no logical thought involved, that they have a moral right to steal, to take the reparations they imagine they're owed. Does that have any relation to the fact that although blacks are just 13% of the population, they commit 50% of the crime? Anyway, the non-observance of shoplifting laws is just one more symptom of a corrupt culture and a collapsing civilization. At this point, International Man says, well, videos of smash-and-grab robberies where large groups rush into a larger store like Walmart or a very expensive one like Louis Vuitton and grab as much merchandise as they can carry are circulating online. In places like Portland... Walmart has decided to permanently close all of its stores because of the rise in theft. For similar reasons, Target has closed stores in downtown Chicago, Minneapolis, and Washington, D.C. And then he asks, how is rising crime affecting businesses and what are the implications? Doug Casey's answer is, from a criminal's point of view, in the kind of societal environment we're in right now, flash mobs make sense, make a lot of sense, rather. If you call together your posse to raid a store and a hundred people overwhelm it to steal all they can, there's nothing the employees can do about it. In fact, there's likely nothing the police can do about it, if only because it happens so quickly. He says it's a clever tactic. But this type of thing happens not because they're poor, black, or there aren't enough police, but because people no longer have a sense of right or wrong. The police are loath to stop them for fear of being called racists. Increasingly, business itself makes no sense with the amount of taxes and regulations an entrepreneur has to deal with added to the lack of defense from common criminals. 
So he says, I expect this trend to continue. If it does, not just ghettos, but central business districts will be devoid of retail stores. Many office buildings will be empty. Others will opt to become self-contained fortresses. International Man then asks, well, many cities have decided to defund the police. They've seen a surge in violent crime generally, carjackings, armed robbery, murder. What do you make of the trend of rising crime? Doug Casey says, once again, it's an indicator of the general degradation of civilization itself. In fact, he says, if you're wondering where the U.S. is going, you can look at Venezuela, where the standard of living has collapsed since being totally taken over by socialist values in the last 20 years. And Argentina has been on a shallower glide path for the last 80 years. Latin seemed to have learned absolutely nothing, however, since every country in South America, with the exception of Uruguay, is run by a doctrinaire socialist. Look at South Africa, which is still the most advanced country on the continent. Americans rarely hear about it, but power is only available half the day. The blacks have practically declared open season on whites in part of the, parts of the country. That's the direction we're going in the U.S., all over the West, criminals and welfare recipients are rewarded, while producers are punished. China has some huge problems, but this is one area where they're doing much better than the rest of the world. Common criminality is not tolerated in China or anywhere in the Orient. Welfare barely exists. That's one reason why China has risen relative to the U.S. in recent years. The social and moral underpinnings of China are shockingly better than they are in the woke U.S. In fact, the U.S. seems to be undergoing its own version of the great cultural revolution that nearly destroyed China in the 1960s. Now, I'm going to tap the brakes here because I'm coming up on my own commercial break, but you've probably noticed this, too, if you have uh, you know, been on social media, if you've watched any, any kind of news, you've seen there, there's a rising tide of lawlessness. And it's, it's concerning, to put it mildly. Nobody wants to, you know, venture out into public thinking, well, this could be the day that, you know, I'm walking, you know, to my car with my groceries and I'm attacked by a mob and people just, you know, steal it from me and run off. But this is becoming a reality in some areas. And, you know, I, I hate to paint with this broad brush, but I'm going to throw this out there. It really seems like the worst of these videos always seem to come from enclaves that are almost exclusively Democrat run or heavily blue areas. And I just think it's that, that intolerance for property rights or that lack of respect for property rights, that's where that begins. And then it spreads through the population. No wonder people are fleeing the cities. No wonder people want to go somewhere where it's still free. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Once again, thank you for, uh, thanks for taking a chance. Thanks for hitting the play button. Thanks for taking a listen. I don't know that I have anything of great importance to share, but if nothing else, I'm going to uh, hopefully help you see that you are not alone in uh, looking around and saying, wow, this is not right. This is not fine. Even though a lot of people seem to just be putting their heads down, oh, it's, it's, it'll get better all by itself. The truth of the matter is, no, it won't. I'm going to go back now to this article, uh, this interview with Doug Casey. This was published on LewRockwell.com. Rising crime, legalized shoplifting, and other disturbing trends in U.S. cities. The next question that International Man asks of Doug Casey has to do with the fact that amid rising crime, police are failing miserably to protect life and property. 
Could the free market provide these services better than the government, and how would that work? Now, Doug's answer is, first of all, it's essential to turn around the moral climate. That's possible, but it's also a whole different question. From a shorter-term, practical viewpoint, the police, the courts, and the prisons should all be privatized. Rather than being state employees enforcing arbitrary, often ridiculous laws, the U.S. should revert to its founding principles. In fact, he has a link here where he talks about how this shocking proposal would work in much more detail. Private police would be compensated based on their effectiveness. More like Mike Hammer or Mannix than the Praetorian operative who puts away the tools at the end of a shift. Arbitration agencies whose profitability would depend on the speed, fairness, and low cost of their decisions would be a huge improvement over today's highly political courts. Sentences would be assessed as dollar amounts to compensate victims, not costly sentences of incarceration. The first order of business should be to make the victim whole, not to punish the perpetrator. If someone steals $1,000, the criminal must first pay back the victim, which rarely happens today, plus the costs of his capture and the arbitration costs. This takes the profit out of crime. If a person is murdered, a value assigned to his life would be paid to his estate. If the perpetrator is unable or unwilling to pay, well, his body parts should be sold. Now, there's much more to be said on the subject examining solutions that haven't crossed many minds. That is an interesting thought. Finally, International Man says, okay, U.S. cities are degenerating into expensive, unsafe, crime-ridden dumps that rival or are even worse than their third-world counterparts. Yet the public continues to elect politicians that enact the policies that create these conditions in the first place. What do you make of this trend? Is there any hope? What can the average person do? Doug Casey's answer is the real problem started with the government's involvement in the economy. It started small, then took a giant or a quantum leap, rather, with the creation of the income tax and the Fed in 1913, which allowed it to finance World War II starting in 1917. The process is now completely out of control. Notwithstanding what I just said about police, the courts, and the prisons, he says the only involvement government should have in society is to protect people from force, which means that those things, plus a purely defensive military, are the only things government should be involved in. Perversely, these things are too important for the functioning of a civil society to allow the state a monopoly. What the state mostly does today is interfere in the economy and enrich the politically well-connected. It does not reliably protect the average person from crime and violence. Now, he says, at the founding of this country, the state represented just a tiny proportion of the economy. Now, it's 50%, and people expect its involvement everywhere. People have come to treat it as a cornucopia, not as the dangerous predator it is. Welfare is available everywhere from corporations to individuals. Food, shelter, medical care, education, even jobs are expected to be the province of the government. But he says these things should have nothing to do with the government. All the news that we hear about every day is what the government is doing. We should be a lot more like Switzerland. Nobody knows, nobody cares who the president of Switzerland is, which is one reason why Switzerland is a stable and prosperous country. And the U.S. is becoming less that way daily. Doug Casey says the bottom line is that we can expect crime to continue rising, and the state is now more the cause than the cure of the problem. See, this is, this is why I like Doug Casey's take on things. He's, I think he's uh, got it down. By the way, uh, when he talks about, you know, what what's happened to our, our justice system, I'm putting this in, in the police, the courts, and, and the prisons, it's been, it's been very uh, 
terribly corrupted. I talked yesterday a little bit about to what Ammon Bundy was facing, you know, where a judge who uh, is, is now trying to haul him into court, issues an arrest warrant, bring him into court on a civil case, which should have just resulted in a, uh, you know, a default judgment. Okay, you didn't show up. I'm going to find for, you know, the, the claimants here. But no. It's, it's really interesting. Ammon released a video yesterday, about a 15-minute video, in which he, he talked about uh, uh, speaking to St. Luke's and, and their, their uh, pack of lawyers that they've sicked on him. And he just said, look, and he takes a little walk around his property. He goes, here's my truck. These are my tools. This is, he goes, I rent this house, so you, know, you won't be able to take this from me. But he says, um, the scripture in the New Testament talks about if thine enemy would uh, sue thee for thy coat, give unto him also your cloak. If he would compel you to go a mile, go another mile with him. And Ammon basically just came out and said, look, come take whatever you want to take from me. And he was going through, now that's my daughter's truck. You can't take that. That doesn't belong to me. But basically he says, come take every material possession that I have. Take it all so that you can leave me alone. But something tells me that uh, th- there's a Shylock vibe that's, that's going on here. And, uh, and they want their pound of flesh. And it's, it's so interesting to see, you know, this, this judge who issues an arrest warrant when she could have just issued a default judgment. Something's pretty fishy there. And it's, it seems to me that uh, what we have are, we have very corrupt individuals, and I'm talking from the judge to the, the head of, uh, of St. Luke's to uh, the head of the Idaho State Police and anybody else who's playing into this, oh, well, he's a dangerous man and we have to do something to contain him. Ammon Bundy has not harmed a single individual. He hasn't. And this all stems from him standing up to a number of of individuals and agencies, law enforcement, health and welfare, doctors and the, the medical establishment, trying to medically kidnap a healthy baby from his parents for missing a doctor's appointment. Now, I know statists are going to look for any reason to believe. They're going to grasp for any stri- anything, anything. I've got to believe that they're still right. But they're not. And because Ammon and his friend uh, Diego Rodriguez have, have stood up and, and they have exposed some of the malfeasance on the part of these actors, the directive has been given, destroy him. You know, I don't know what the outcome's going to be. Right now, again, the press here in Idaho is still, you know, beating the drum. Well, he's a dangerous man. He's a dangerous man. Law enforcement needs to take care of him, which is a veiled way of saying they need to kill this guy. They need to create some kind of a confrontation so they can Lavoy Finicum him and, and set in motion some kind of a confrontation where there is zero margin for error. And uh, boy, he made a furtive movement. He twitched. He did something and we had to shoot him. We had no choice. But the whole conflict is their creation. None of it would have started. I mean, they've accused Ammon and they've accused his friend Diego of, well, they're only doing this as a grift. They just did this to, to uh, get rich and to draw attention to themselves. You know, Ammon's a pretty smart businessman. He's built a couple of multi-million dollar businesses. There are easier ways to come by money. There are, there are less painful ways to gain fame if that is your, your goal. Now, again, I'm confessing this because I know the man personally. I don't think it's about fame. I don't think it's about making money. I think it's about standing up for what's right, even when it puts you at very real risk. 
This is something he has shown a willingness to do where very, very few people were willing to do it. So, I don't know how it shakes out from here. You know, the again, the, the press is still salivating at the idea that there's got to be some way to stop this dangerous guy. But what makes him dangerous isn't the fact that he's a violent guy. He's not. Again, he has harmed no one. What makes him dangerous is he is standing up to their intimidation. He is standing up to their lies. He is exposing the wickedness that they are willing to commit in order to keep their hold of power and to stay above the people and keep us subservient. And they're worried that other people might see his example, draw courage from it, and likewise, withdraw their consent. Yeah, that's pretty dangerous, all right. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to my sponsors. These are the folks who help to make this program possible. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. I have links provided in my show notes. You can check those out at thebrianhideshow.com. I'm going to take a moment here, too, and thank the uh, the individuals. Uh, you know who you are. There are some individuals who, uh, who through uh, some of the various platforms that carry my program, uh, Anchor being one of them, uh, become regular monthly subscribers. And, you know, it's not a lot. You know, they, some of them do $5 a month, $10 a month. I thank you so much for your support of this. If if you find value in what I'm sharing with you, um, I appreciate those who who think enough of it that they'd be willing to forego a cup of coffee or a couple of cups of coffee and 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 pass that along in interest of, of helping me do what I do without having to, you know, constantly be looking for another side hustle to keep the lights on. So thanks again. Let's talk for a moment about uh, yesterday was April 19th. And it's, it's a little bit shocking. I, I'm, I don't feel this old, but... 30 years ago, on April 19th, that was the FBI's disastrous assault on the Branch Davidians in Texas. Got a great article here from Jim Bovard. This was for the Libertarian Institute. 30 years later, Waco is still damning. Actually, I saw something very uh, very funny today. I don't know if this is legit. If it is, man, it was. It's a. this is a pretty good burn. This is like third degree, get them to the Shriners Hospital kind of burn. But uh, the ATF apparently had a tweet yesterday about April 19th, you know, is uh, Patriot's Day, commemorating the day that brave colonists stood up when the British came to confiscate their arms, you know, at Concord and Lexington. And, you know, you know, we just want to observe this wonderful day. And someone said, oh, wow, man, that's amazing. By the way, which side do you think you would have been on? Woo! Oh, Wow. It's harsh, but there's some truth there. All right, let's see what Jim Bovard has to say. Jim says, 30 years ago, FBI tanks smashed into the ramshackle home of the Branch Davidians outside Waco, Texas. After the FBI collapsed much of the building atop the residence, a fire erupted and 76 corpses were dug out of the rubble. Unfortunately, the American political system and media have never honestly portrayed the federal abuses and political deceit that led to that carnage. So what lessons can today's Americans draw from the FBI showdown on the Texas Plains 30 years ago? Well, first of all, purported good intentions absolve real deadly force. 
Janet Reno, the nation's first female attorney general, approved the FBI's assault on the Davidians. Previously, she had zealously prosecuted child abuse cases in Dade County, Florida, though many of her high-profile convictions were later overturned because of gross violations of due process. By the way, he links to each of these uh, claims so that you can check this out for yourself. Reno says she approved the FBI assault after being told babies were being beaten. Now, it's not known who told her about the false claims of child abuse. Reno claimed she couldn't remember. Her sterling reputation helped the government avoid any apparent culpability for the deaths of 27 children on April 19, 1993. After Reno publicly promised to take responsibility for the outcome at Waco, the media conferred instant sainthood upon her. At a press conference the day after the fire, President Bill Clinton declared, I was frankly surprised would be a mild word to say that anyone would suggest that the attorney general should resign because some religious fanatics murdered themselves. Ah, Bill, a truth teller ever to the end, eh? According to a federal news service transcript, the White House press corps applauded Clinton's comment on Reno. Jim Bovard also points out it is not an atrocity if the U.S. government does it. He says shortly before the Waco showdown, U.S. government officials signed an International Chemical Weapons Convention Treaty pledging never to use nerve agents, mustard gas, and other compounds, including tear gas, against enemy soldiers. But the treaty contained a loophole permitting governments to gas their own people. So on April 19, 1993, the FBI pumped CS gas and methyl chloride, a potentially lethal, flammable combination, into the Davidians' residence for six hours, despite explicit warnings that CS gas should not be used indoors. Benjamin Garrett, executive director of the Chemical and Biological Arms Control Institute in Alexandria, Virginia, observes the CS gas would have panicked the children. Their eyes would have involuntarily shut, their skin would have been burning, they would have been gasping for air and coughing wildly. Eventually, they would have been overcome with vomiting in a final hell. A 1975 U.S. Army publication on the effects of CS gas noted, generally persons reacting to CS are incapable of executing organized and concerted actions, and excessive exposure to CS may make them incapable of vacating the area. Representative Stephen Schiff of New Mexico declared that the deaths of dozens of men, women, and children can be directly and indirectly attributable to the use of gas in the way it was injected by the FBI. Chemistry, chemistry professor George Ulig testified to Congress in 1995 that the FBI gas attack probably suffocated the children early on and may have converted their poorly ventilated bunker into an area similar to one of the gas chambers used by the Nazis at Auschwitz. But during those 1995 hearings, congressional Democrats portrayed CS gas as innocuous as a Flintstone vitamin. Next conclusion, Orwellian language will vaporize federal aggression. As Abrams' tanks, driven by FBI agents, continually battered the Davidians' home, FBI loudspeakers broadcast endlessly, This is not an assault! According to FBI apologists in the media, that proved the feds did not assault the Davidians. Prior to the fire, the tanks had collapsed 20% of the building atop its residence, and the FBI planned to totally demolish the home. Grenade launchers on the tanks and other armored vehicles fired almost 400 ferret rounds of CS gas through the thin wooden walls and windows of the building. Yet Attorney General Reno later insisted, We didn't attack, we tried to exercise every restraint possible to avoid violence. Demolishing someone's home was supposedly no more bothersome than leaving a Federal Express package on their doorstep. 
1993 Justice Department investigation was so shoddy that even the New York Times denounced the Waco whitewash. But that blunt condemnation was soon memory hold in the rush to absolve the feds. Next thing to take away, don't trust Congress to expose federal misconduct. A few days after the conflagration, Reno was heartily praised at a Senate committee hearing and the media made her a national hero. There was little or no sympathy on Capitol Hill for those who died during the final FBI assault. Representative Jack Brooks of Texas, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, commented that the Davidians were horrible people, despicable people, burning to death was too good for them. If the Republicans had not captured control of Congress in 1994, there would have been no substantive hearings on Waco. And even those hearings faltered badly at times because so many Republican congressmen wasted their time boasting of their love of law enforcement rather than seeking the truth. Next takeaway, media favorites can perform rhetorical magical tricks, or magic tricks rather. When Attorney General Reno testified to the House Waco hearing on August 1st, 1995, she was challenged on the FBI's use of 54-ton tanks to assail the Davidians. Reno replied that the tanks were not military weapons. It was more more like a good rent-a-car. When Representative Bill Zeliff of New Hampshire challenged her, Reno hectored, I think it is important, Mr. Chairman, as you deal with this issue, not to make statements like that can cause the confusion. This is the high-toned D.C. version of the old saying, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Media coverage of Reno's showdown with congressional Republicans ignored her rent-a-tank absurdity and instead praised her toughness and demeanor. Next takeaway, bad attitudes, not federal atrocities, are the real problem. Waco illustrates how truth will out is Washington's biggest fairy tale. The FBI speedily asserted that the Davidians ignited the fire that consumed their dwelling, but never provided convincing evidence on that score. Six years later, independent investigator Michael McNulty found pyrotechnic ferret rounds that the FBI fired at the scene prior to the flames erupting in a Texas government evidence warehouse. Attorney General Reno lashed out at the FBI for destroying her credibility, but neither she nor FBI officials suffered any consequences from the collapse of the official narrative. Now, there's a lot more to this, but uh, I'm, I'm running out of time. I guess the, the bottom line here is, look, as Jim Povard points out, the same storyline still prevails in much of the nation's media. Just last month, the Houston Chronicle editorial declared, Waco has become an Alamo of sorts, a shrine for anti-government extremists and conspiracists. Waco should have taught the disastrous consequences of unleashing government agencies from the law and the Constitution. He says 30 years after the FBI's final assault, millions of Americans still refuse to recognize tanks and flashbang grenades as federal paternalism at its best. I know it's been 30 years, Brian. Why don't we just let this thing rest? Why can't we just let everybody rest in peace? Because the same people who did this never, ever faced any kind of accountability, never faced any kind of punishment for it, which means... They would gladly do it again, and they would gladly have the same media whitewash to help them pull it off. I don't know. You know, I I guess this is going to sound kind of radical, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is one of the reasons why you absolutely positively cannot give up your firearms. But Brian, they had tanks. Yes. Yes, they did. But if you give up your firearms, then they won't need tanks because they'll have them and you won't. All I'm saying is, that kind of tyranny should be extremely costly. And there's always that implied cost as long as you have an armed populace. Go ahead.
Connect the dots. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I got three stories I want to touch on here in the final segment today. I'm going to start with the... I, this is actually the meme that I include in today's uh, show notes. Um, I, I saw there's there are a couple of uh, Idaho-based uh, Twitter members who are, well, they're just rabidly leftist. And they were incensed at the NRA's meeting last week that there were pictures of kids holding guns. Why? They had their fingers on the trigger. And actually, you're going to see the meme that I shared. Is a cute little kid wearing his hat backwards, holding a pistol. He's he's pointing right at the camera. Now this this pistol is chained to the table. Okay, this is this is like the shot show if you've ever been there. People handle firearms. They you know it's it's a safe environment in the sense that these guns are checked, rechecked, and so forth to where you know there there is no possibility of loading them. They 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 make sure that they are kept safe. Now having said that, I still believe you should practice practice good trigger discipline. You should never point a gun at something you shouldn't you, that you wouldn't want to destroy. So, having said that, these kids need some some practice on this. But here's this picture of this cute little kid and and the pistol's pointed right at the camera. And and someone had tweeted, "Republicans are grooming their children into a generation of Kyle Rittenhouses." And this is what it set off at least one or more Twitter users here in, in my home state of Idaho. And they were just, look at this. They're grooming these kids. They're groomers. They're groomers. Best response I've seen, that's because your party wants to have sex with them. All right. <laughs> it may be harsh, but it's also pretty good. And by the way, um, I'm, I'm not one to carry water for the NRA. It's so funny that, uh, you know, when you see... Uh, Talk about, well, the strength of the gun lobby. It's the NRA. That's the only reason Americans have a right to keep and bear arms. No, no, I'll tell you. I parted company with the NRA a long time ago when I figured out that, you know, in a way, they help to, uh, to create gun control because it's job security for them. If the problem was really settled, if the matter was done, they'd be out of a job so they couldn't send me all those neat fundraising letters. I know this isn't going to be a popular opinion with some people, but um, basically... The NRA, I believe, is part of the problem in that they have a vested interest in keeping gun control alive, or at least the prospect of gun control alive, and and they have compromised their way into some really ugly things. So I'm not a supporter. I love their child safety programs, you know, teaching kids gun safety. I think that's wonderful. But as far as a political lobbying group, I would not support them. So my point is just simply this. They don't speak for me. My right to keep and bear arms doesn't matter with uh, whether the NRA supports this, that, or the other thing. My right to keep and bear arms comes because I understand it is a pre-existing right. It predates government, and the only thing the Second Amendment does, it doesn't confer any kind of a right on me. What it does is it sets a very clear line in the sand by expressly forbidding government to interfere with that pre-existing right. I know they've tried to find ways around it, but uh, guess what? As a part of we the people, who are the ones who actually, uh, you know, wrote the Constitution, or at least the Constitution was written on behalf of we the people, look at the preamble. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm one of those people, which means I do have the right to interpret. And that is exactly how I interpret it. 
That's a prohibition on government. It is not a grant of anything to me. So they can pass whatever laws, regulations, things that they want to pass and say, well, because we did it, this must be legal and proper. I know better. And I know a lot of other people who know better. We don't take our cue from some black-robed, you know, justice sitting on a federal bench somewhere. Nope. I also happen to know a little bit about history. And I'm painfully aware that uh, governments murdered more than 262 million people. This is not war. This is like wholesale government liquidation of people just in the 20th century. And every single time, every single time, that governments engaged in genocidal activity. They first disarmed the targeted populace. And that is why I will never give up my life preserver. Okay, you decide for yourself, but my mind is made up. So I won't argue it with people. I won't, uh, I won't sit there and debate it. I'm done talking. You keep talking if you want to, but uh, the fact that I'm not talking should be a pretty big clue that uh, my mind is made up on the matter. Full stop. All right. Let me switch to something a little bit more pleasant here. Uh, Daylight savings. I hate it. I'm probably not the only one. Bertine Schaefer, in a piece on LouRockwell.com today, talks about how to nullify daylight savings. She talks about, when I was 9 or 10, I refused to switch over to daylight savings time. My uncle had given me a watch with glow-in-the-dark hands and numbers, and I wore it all the time, set to standard time the whole year. If anybody ever asked me the time, they never did. I was 9 or 10 years old. But she says, I would tell them the time in standard time. I only did that one year, and I guess it didn't accomplish anything other than the satisfaction of having done it. But she says, for me, the episode is a reminder that even kids understand that the whole daylight savings thing is a bunch of bull, and it ought to be resisted. Now, as an adult, she says, I've grown accustomed to hearing other adults complain about daylight savings time every time it comes around. And even there are, and there are even legislative efforts to do away with it. But she says, it occurs to me that even though the problem is a product of centralized control, the solution doesn't need to be centralized at all. Not even at the state or local level. So she says, here's what I'm thinking. We already have multiple time zones. And people around the world are accustomed to dealing with them. We schedule calls and meetings with an awareness of the differing time zones of the participants. Most scheduling and online meeting software automatically adjusts times for individuals depending on where they are. So throwing a few more time zones into the mix really shouldn't be a big deal. What if everyone who no longer wishes to have their lives disrupted by the daylight savings time farce simply declares a new time zone for themselves? For half the year, that time zone would be the same as that of the region in which they live. Eastern Standard Time, Central Standard Time, etc. But when everyone else switches over to daylight time, everyone in this new, or it's actually quite old, time zone would stay put. And it would even be easy to name. Instead of Eastern Daylight Time or Eastern Standard Time, simply Eastern Permanent Standard Time, etc. She says adjusting online scheduling will be easier than in-person scheduling, especially if people develop widgets to use with Zoom and other software. Or, dare we hope, these apps add the new time zones on their own. Arizona and Hawaii already don't follow DST, and they're always on permanent standard time, so the idea of incorporating new time zones that remain constant throughout the year isn't especially radical. For in-person scheduling, well, the person choosing to be on whatever region, permanent standard time, could take it upon themselves to clarify which standard the person with, which, with whom they are scheduling uses or to assume that the other person is following daylight savings time unless they indicate otherwise. 
Now, she says the big issue is going to be school and work starting times. For those who don't have flexibility in these areas, here's my suggestion. Go to bed and get up at the same times in permanent standard time throughout the year. Make these times early enough that when everyone else goes to the earlier schedule, you don't have to disrupt your sleeping hours in order to get to work or your kids to school on time. Will implementing all of this entail some effort, hassle, disruption? Sure it will. Any kind of change involves some kind of, some of, some of all of this. But she says the only relevant question is whether or not the change is worth the headache. And here, as everywhere else, the only person qualified to make that judgment is the individual involved. Those who are more aware of the impact of the circadian rhythms on our bodies, health, and well-being may decide that it's absolutely worth a little extra hassle to avoid this disruption to our physical and energetic health. Those who are less aware or less concerned may decide it's not. She says early 21st century America is testament to the abject stupidity and deadliness of collective decision-making. If we're to make things better in any of the areas of our lives that have been ravaged by government solutions, we must make every effort to bring decision-making to the individual level. Daylight savings time is one area where we already possess the power to do just that. I like her idea. I'm actually giving it very serious consideration. Because, man, I, I, I work a very weird schedule anyway. Most days I am up somewhere between 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. And it's, I, I don't know if this is a product of getting old, if, if it's, you know, low T, whatever. I don't know what it is. I can't sleep very late. And there's also the fact my mind switches on. I know I have things to do. I get up early. My mind is fresher. My voice is a little more clear. It gets tired as the day goes on. You know, I, I, I kind of like having that, that quiet time. But I'll also confess, I truly resent the idea of having to adjust and, and feeling my circadian rhythms just get totally thrown into a jumble every time daylight saving either comes or goes. So I might have to just uh, start uh, living on Brian's standard time or Brian permanent time. It will be a hassle, at least for me, but I'll try not to make it one for you. Hey, if you want to check out my show notes, I would invite you, please go to thebrianhideshow.com. If you find something of value there, if it's something that helps you better understand the world or inspires you to stand tall at a time when other people just want to bury their heads in the sand, consider subscribing. It's not going to cost you anything. I will not spam your email account. All I'm going to ask you to do is drop me that email and I'll send you a copy of my show notes every day that I do the program. Sound like a deal? Thanks again for listening. This is The Brian Hyde Show.